ETF Prime is hosted by investment advisors of the ETF store. This program is for informational purposes only and does not constitute investment advice. Investing in ETFs involves risk, including potential loss of principal. Any past performance figures discussed are not necessarily indicative of future results. The ETF store is not affiliated with ETF.com or any of its affiliates. ETF.com's participation in this program should not be construed as an endorsement or an indication by ETF.com of the value of any ETF store product or service. Visit ETFstore.com for more information. Now it's time for ETF Prime, where we discuss everything you need to know about exchange-traded funds and the world of investing. Whether you're an investing expert or just starting out, Nate will help you get up to date with what's happening on Wall Street and show you how exchange-traded funds can help lower your investment costs, reduce your tax bill, and allow you to take advantage of investment opportunities around the world. And now, the host of ETF Prime, Nate Geraci. All right, have I got a show for you today. Two of my favorite topics in the ETF space, marijuana and crypto. Of course, it is April 20th, 420. It's the perfect day to talk cannabis ETFs. And I'll be joined by two of the very best in the business to cover this. Laura Krigger, Managing Editor at ETF Trends and ETF Database, and Meb Faber, CEO and Chief Investment Officer at Cambria Investment Management. This will be fun. Laura's going to dive into the entire cannabis ETF landscape right now. She'll highlight the ETFs out there. We'll talk differences, performance, how to evaluate these ETFs. We'll cover it all. And then Meb's going to focus on the investment side of the equation for cannabis, what he views as some of the key drivers right now. We'll also talk about the risks involved to include whether valuations are extended. And of course, Meb does have his own cannabis ETF, TOKE, T-O-K-E, one of the best ticker symbols anywhere. So we'll drill into that as well. And I'll just say, if you have any interest whatsoever in cannabis ETFs and the cannabis market, I think you're in for a real treat. Again, just two tremendous resources. Now, to start this week, I do want to touch on this Coinbase Direct listing last week and its impact on the ETF market. And yes, I do think there's at least a small Bitcoin ETF tie-in here, because of course I do. But I have ETF.com, Samit Roy on the line with me, and we're going to discuss this now. Time now for our weekly chat with the experts at ETF.com, the world's leading independent authority on ETF. Just like with the stock, it's a function of the volume of the security. You can often put your limit order in between those two prices. That's just you're still concerned about how do you value cryptocurrencies. Samit, great having you back on the podcast. Happy to be here, Nate. Thanks for having me. Okay, so we got this big Coinbase debut last Wednesday. This was a direct listing, not a traditional IPO. And by the close of trading, the company was valued at $86 billion. And I noted this on Twitter. The last private funding round Coinbase had back in 2018, they were valued at $8 billion, which is pretty amazing. But this was obviously a highly anticipated debut. And fairly quickly, I feel like attention started turning towards which ETFs would be the first to own this stock. To start, I'll just hand this over to you. Take us through which ETFs do already own this thing. Yeah, Nate. So by my count, there's now seven ETFs that hold Coinbase. And most of them piled into this stock on the first day that it began trading. ARK, a lot of people may have heard, was a big buyer of the name. And they've picked up positions in uh, three of their funds. One, their flagship ETF, ARKK. They also have it in their internet-focused ETF, ARKW, and their fintech-focused fund, ARKF. Um, interestingly, six of the seven ETFs that own uh, Coinbase have similarly sized positions in the, in the name, ranging from 1.1% to 1.3% of their respective portfolios. And that includes the, the three ARC ETFs, as well as the First Trust US Equity Opportunities ETF, FPX, the Amplify Transformational Data Sharing ETF, BLOK, and the Sire NASDAQ Next Gen Economy ETF, BLCN, 
the only one of the ETFs that owns Coinbase that doesn't have a similarly sized position is the BlackRock Future Tech ETF, BTEK, B-T-E-K. That has a much smaller position, 0.31%. It was interesting. I was tracking ARK's purchases of Coinbase throughout the week. And as you mentioned, they jumped right in on Wednesday. I, I showed uh, that as of this past Friday, they already own some 1.3 million shares of Coinbase across the three ETFs that you mentioned. And, you know, you think back, they were in early on the Grayscale Bitcoin Trust, GBTC. Of course, a lot of people think about Tesla getting in fairly early there with, with ARKK. But I, I don't think any real surprise to see ARK jump in to the water there. The blockchain ETFs you mentioned, that makes a lot of sense. Um, I, I guess any other ETFs that you're expecting to own Coinbase in fairly short order? Yeah, yeah, we're definitely going to see it in the Renaissance IPO ETF, a ticker symbol IPO. Renaissance, which is the issuer, they already said that's going to happen very shortly. And I expect that Coinbase is going to find itself pretty much in all the fintech ETFs that are out there, VFIN, FinEx, IPay, TPay. You're also going to see it in a lot of the disruptive tech ETFs, not just the ARCs of the world, but all of the new ones as well. And you're going to see it in growth ETFs because um, obviously it is a growth company. The easiest way to know where Coinbase might end up is just to check and see which ETFs own PayPal and Square. Those are obviously aren't perfect comps, but they are fintech platforms that have some crypto functionality. So as we move forward, wherever you find those, there's a good chance you're going to find Coinbase. Obviously, the ARK ETFs are actively managed. I know Block is as well. Does this make a case for active management at all? Just in the sense that active managers maybe can be a bit more nimble reacting to new IPOs and indirect listings like this. Do you think there's anything to that? I don't think so, Nate. And I'll just point out that some index-based products have discretion with regard to when they can add stocks to their portfolios. We've seen ETFs like FPX, fast track some of these initial public offerings and direct listings into their portfolios ahead of their indices. FPX already did it. They already have Coinbase as one of their holdings, even though that's an index-based product. That said, I don't think an active strategy is better at capitalizing on new stocks in general. Most new stocks underperform the market, uh, and even IPOs that end up being big winners don't necessarily take off right away. There's, there's usually a lot of time to get in at similar prices to what you see on the first day of trading, if not better prices. Uh, and that's even more so the case with direct listings. Um, in most cases, you have all the shares outstanding available for trading on day one when it comes to a direct listing. There's no six-month lockup period. So that's tended to put downward pressure on uh, these direct listings during their first few weeks or their first few months. And so that gives plenty of time for a passive ETF to get into a stock like a Coinbase, like an Asana, or in the case of an IPO, like a Snowflake, and still do well if these end up being winning stocks over the long term. Yeah, and I guess on that note of, of potentially being a winning stock, in terms of Coinbase's business itself, I'll be honest, I didn't have an opportunity to crawl through their S1 prior to the direct listing. Uh, I, I did have a chance to look at the financial data they released a couple of weeks ago, and I think I have a decent handle on their business uh, overall. But any thoughts on their prospects moving forward, w w whether their competitive positioning, how tethered they are to crypto prices, those sorts of things? Yeah, and it's a monster business. And they've done a phenomenal job creating this super easy to use secure platform for trading crypto. And it's really allowed investors to be comfortable getting in to the space and not have to worry about whether or not they're going to lose their Bitcoins the next day due to some hack or something like that. That was a big problem early in the evolution of the crypto ecosystem, security. So they kind of solved that. Uh, and that reputation of being a secure platform allowed Coinbase to become this giant who has something like 11.3% of all crypto assets uh, custodied on his platform. Um, and due to that, it's been raking in the trading fees, both as mo more investors use the platform and as the dollar value of cryptocurrencies rises. So Coinbase essentially takes a percentage cut of each transaction that runs through his platform. So 
higher volumes flow directly to the company's top line. And they, they put out numbers a couple of weeks ago indicating how huge this boom in cryptocurrencies has been for them. So in Q1, they said they had revenues of $1.8 billion, which is 10 times their sales from a year ago. And net income was $765 million, which is 20x uh, from what they had a year ago. So you annualize that figure, $765 million, and you get something like $3 billion of profits for the year. Uh, so when you consider that, suddenly Coinbase is $86 billion. A market cap doesn't seem all that expensive. That said, this is a stock that is highly, highly leveraged to cryptocurrency prices, specifically Bitcoin and Ether prices. If you look at the first quarter, the main reason they're making all this revenue and all this profit is because trading volumes exploded to $335 billion in Q1. That's 75% more volume than the company saw in all of 2020. So you're going to ask, like, what's driving this? Well, for one, there's more monthly users on the platform, 6.1 million versus 1.3 million last year. But on top of that, as everyone knows, crypto prices have exploded. Bitcoin was up five times from a year ago and Ether was up eight times. So you combine the two, more trades and at higher prices, and you get these massive volumes, which again, Coinbase takes a cut of primarily from retail investors. Now, that's all the good stuff, but like any investment, there, there are some risks, and the risks in this case are twofold. One is obvious, crypto prices go down. If that happens, Coinbase is going to take a direct hit to its revenues and its profits, and depending how big that decline in crypto prices is, it could be substantial. Remember, last year, revenues were 90% lower than where they are today. The second risk is competition eats into Coinbase's transaction revenues. So this is a company enjoying take rates of something like 0.5% for every dollar transacted on its platform. That's an extremely large number for an exchange and something that competitors are going to undercut it on. And if you think crypto trading functionality ends up being a commodity, that number can go down quite a bit. So those are the risks that investors have to watch out for. On the other hand, maybe Coinbase stays ahead of the competition by adding uh, other functionality onto its platform or building some kind of moat that keeps customers on its platform and away from competitors. So these are the types of things it has to do if it wants to maintain this lofty $87 billion valuation and, and keep growing rapidly. I, I think that's an excellent overview. And I'll just add on the risk side, I agree, watching the competitive landscape is going to be really interesting because if we look at every other aspect of uh, financial services, what have we seen? Fee compression, right? Competition. Absolutely. Uh, th absolutely. Th this terror dome mentality. And I've said before, I think that crypto trading and custody, that's all going to be table stakes at the major brokerages. Now, I'm talking Schwab, Fidelity. Uh, whoever you want to toss in there, I think all will be offering those capabilities sometime in the next few years. And as those types of players get involved in the crypto space, obviously Coinbase, to your point, they're going to have to you know, try to stay out ahead, whether through technology or, or otherwise. So I, I think that's going to be really fascinating to, uh, to watch. Um, Samit, as you always know that I like to do when we start talking crypto, I, I want to head down the Bitcoin ETF path just a little bit. And I, I guess a couple of angles here. First, until a Bitcoin ETF is approved, do you think Coinbase may pick up some investors who just want to play crypto or, or Bitcoin? To your point, you know, it is it is tethered to crypto uh, prices. So do, do you think it could pick up some investors who just want to play that space but don't want to invest in crypto directly? I, I think it could pick up some of those investors in the same way that energy stocks are sometimes used as a proxy for oil prices. But like I mentioned earlier, Nate, Coinbase has business risk and business opportunities that go beyond just the cryptocurrency prices. So as long as investors are aware of that, um, then yeah, you can use it as a proxy, but it's gonna be um, not a perfect proxy for Bitcoin. I guess more importantly, do you think Coinbase going public will have any impact on the SEC approving a Bitcoin ETF? Because I think you can make the case that Coinbase going public sort of 
legitimizes crypto, right? Just in that we now have a crypto exchange as one of the larger companies by market cap. I, I, I mean, you look, it's bigger than the Intercontinental Exchange, which owns the New York Stock Exchange. It's bigger than NASDAQ. Do you think that matters at all to the SEC or just completely irrelevant? I think it has to impact their decision uh, making at least a little bit. I mean, Coinbase's debut uh, is just another thing we can point to and say crypto has entered the mainstream. And, you know, that goes along with other advancements we've seen in the space like, you know, Bitcoin futures uh, and the acceptance of uh, Bitcoin by institutions and institutional grade custodies and, and things like that. So if you look at everything in totality, I think Coinbase adds to that idea that, you know, the market is ready for a U.S. listed Bitcoin ETF. All right. Before I let you go, still on the Bitcoin ETF topic, though, not related to Coinbase. Did you see this last week with uh, ClearShares changing the ticker symbol on their intermediate fixed income ETF to BTC? So this I ticker did, was, what was it, PIFI before? And then they also announced that Grayscale has become an equity owner in ClearShares. What did you make of this? <laughs> Yeah, it's interesting. I mean, I've seen all the speculation on Twitter about maybe Grayscale, they bought into ClearShares for access to that symbol, BTC, um, which maybe it's going to use um, in place of GBTC down the line. Who knows? I mean, you know, we know that tickers matter. Last week, I saw an interview and the Coinbase CFO said they chose NASDAQ to list because NASDAQ had asked access to the symbol coin. So, Symbols matter, and we've, we've seen it in the ETF space. A catchy symbol can go a long way towards attracting investors. So it's going to be interesting to see which product, if any, ends up using the BTC ticker. Do you have any issue with this fixed income fund changing the ticker before um, actually whatever ends up happening, whether this is a, some sort of conversion or Grayscale takes over the ticker? We'll, we'll see what happens. But do you have any problem with them changing that ticker early well, well, that fund is still, again, investing in, in treasuries? I mean, I wouldn't want to see that if that was a fund, fixed income fund that I was invested in. Uh, but ultimately, issuers are going to do what they think is going to be uh, good for them. So uh, I'm not surprised to see it. I wouldn't necessarily want to see it if I was an investor in that fund. Well, Samit, great stuff as always. Uh, really appreciate the time. Thank you for joining me. Thanks, Nate. That was ETF.com, Samit Roy. My next guest is Laura Krieger, Managing Editor at ETF Trends and the ETF Database, one of the best in the business covering ETFs. And she's now on the line with me from New Orleans. Laura, great having you back on the uh, podcast. This is going to be a lot of fun. I cannot wait. What a day to have me back on. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, it's funny because back in the day we had this running joke that if you appeared on ETF Prime, we were talking one of three things, right? ESG, Bitcoin, or marijuana. And uh, now here <laughs> we are, right? Absolutely no surprise. Uh, how's everything going at ETF Trend so far? Oh, it's wonderful. It's been um, just an amazing experience, and I'm I'm excited to, to be here. So, <clears throat> All right, so let's dive into pot ETFs. And it's interesting. So I remember having you on the podcast a couple of years ago and discussing the viability of pot ETFs, like whether these would even stay in existence. And if you recall, yeah. th th this was around the time MJ was switching custodians uh, because I believe U.S. Bank was reluctant to hold shares of pot-related companies. And so MJ moved over to, uh, to, to Wedbush. But now here we are with, what, nine, 10 pot ETFs on the market, nearly $4 billion invested. Pretty remarkable turn of events in a short amount of time. What happened? 
<laughs> well, uh, you know, a lot of things happened. Uh, Reddit happened, for starters. Uh, the regulatory environment shifted, for starters. Uh, you know, I'm not entirely surprised, I suppose, by the the uh, investor interest in these funds. Um, if you remember when MJ first converted over from being the Latin American real estate fund to a marijuana uh, fund, uh, you know, retail investors piled in early to make it sort of a breakout success. And then those assets just sat there without outflows for months and months and months and months. So there was definitely built up uh, interest, pent up interest and demand. What I guess did surprise me was just how mainstream uh, cannabis investing became. And so quickly, you know, just in the past 12 months, we've seen something like $2.4 billion flow into uh, marijuana ETFs. Um, most of the funds have seen very little in the way of day-to-day -day outflows. It's just sat there. And I think a lot of that mainstreaming has to do with folks uh, recognizing, you know, the, the writing on the wall, right? For years, we've been talking about the promise of cannabis as an industry. And now we're starting to see some of those promises become reality. Legalization, you know, it's one of those slowly, but then all at once kind of phenomenons where just over the past two years, 18 months, we've seen massive pullback in the federal and, or at the federal and state level in terms of prohibitions and prosecutions. There's only six states now where marijuana is still 100% illegal. Every other state has some level of legalization, be it medical or recreational or, or both. Um, and then on top of that, you have uh, the fact that the cannabis industry, I think, has benefited, benefited tremendously from this kind of general obsession we've all had uh, or we've all developed about disruptive healthcare and biotechnology, right? So after the past year that we've had, uh, all eyes are trained on trying to figure out what the next medical breakthrough is gonna be and what, what the biggest and newest disruptive innovation in this space is gonna be. And so cannabinoids, uh, which are based off of the cannabis plant, they end up being top of mind um, you know, in terms of breakthroughs in pain management and the treatment of certain chronic uh, conditions. So when, you know, biotech and healthcare, they're rising, that's going to lift these small cap pharmaceutical companies that dominate the cannabis space, um, you know, that are developing these new drugs. They're going to rise with that tide, you know? Okay, so with the caveat that we're not going to go through every single pot ETF in, in detail, what I thought might be good here is to have you give us an overview of the pot ETF space, who the players are, what are the options, anything else you, you find noteworthy. So, so take us through this. Right. So we are up to nine ETPs in the space now, which is more than I thought that uh, this industry would be able to support. Uh, we've got funds from, I mentioned MJ earlier, that's the, the first mover in the space. We have two funds from Advisor Shares. Uh, we've got a fund from GlobalX and uh, Cambria and Amplify. I mean, it seems like everybody and their mother is, is launching a, a cannabis ETF. And there's a couple of different ways to slice and dice these various ETFs. Uh, you know, a few of them are actively managed, a few are passive. Some are global in nature, some only focus on Canadian and U.S. stocks. Um, one of the big differentiators is, you know, poking under the hood, which ETFs allow uh, cigarette manufacturers, alcohol makers, and fertilizer companies in their portfolio, uh, and which ones don't. I know that, um, for example, MJ has that broad mandate to be able to invest in stocks like Philip Morris and, and Scott's miracle Grow and so on. I think, though, what is really important is that uh, for folks to kind of understand about the cannabis space is that it's still pretty small, even though there has been a, just a wellspring of investor interest and, uh, you know, clearly the demand for this industry is there. Business growth, until fairly recently, has been hamstrung by federal prohibition on cannabis. Um, the classification of it being a Schedule One drug made it pretty much impossible for companies within that space to say secure credit or open traditional banking accounts at you know traditional banks so even though there's this this promising growth story 
Only so many companies have been able to manage these restrictions and jump through these hoops. And as a result, many of the ETFs in the cannabis space are basically trading around and holding the same names in the same sectors with the same exposures, just you know, different amounts, right? So a few months ago, I looked at this and I found that the seven ETFs, not the ETNs, that's kind of a different story, um, but the seven cannabis ETFs only held 55 unique names among them. That's not a massively investable universe, you know? And most of these are small caps and micro caps. So, however, there is one ETF I think um, we both want to talk a little bit more in detail about, and that's the Advisor Shares uh, Pure US Cannabis ETF, that's ticker MSOS. This is an ETF that launched in September, uh, last September, I should say, already over a billion dollars in assets. It took me completely by surprise. I had no idea this was going to be as big as it was. No, huge success story. I mean, why do you think it's having so much success? So, uh, you know, there's there's a couple of complicated interwoven factors, I think. Um, MSOS is basically the 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 best and in some ways the only way to get exposure to the U.S. Uh, cannabis industry. It's a U.S. centric version of YOLO, which was the second pot ETF to come to market. Um, and if you aren't familiar with it, um, you know, YOLO and MSOS, they do this, they have this this thing that makes them different in that they can hold what are called total return swaps. That's a type of derivative contract that basically gives you access to a stock's return without actually holding that security in your portfolio. So in MSOS's case, that means that this fund can use total return swaps to get access to US-based uh, growers and uh, cannabis distributors. Uh, and a lot of these companies, like I was talking before, that couldn't access you know, financial channels um, that are kind of, I think, still technically illegal to hold within you know, a framework. It's all kind of gray space now. But um, until very recently, you, know, you couldn't hold these in, a, in an ETF. And so they used these derivatives contracts to gain access. So uh, you know, growers can't be listed, still can't be listed on national securities exchanges in the U.S. Pharmaceutical companies are a different story, but, you know, these growers can't. And so that means, um, you know, to get U.S. exposure or exposure to the U.S. cannabis industry in your fund, uh, you basically have to go do this workaround where you're going to the same, you know, handful of Canadian stocks, you know, Canadian companies who went through this complicated approvals process in order to get uh, listed on U.S. exchange um, exchanges. But those are Canadian companies, right? They're not U.S. specifically. And so getting access to the stocks of U.S. growers, it's not really possible unless you use these total return swaps. So that's what makes MSOS uh, that that whole arrangement so powerful. They're the only ones <laughs> until extremely recently, um, I'll explain that in a second, that have the ability to use derivatives. Um, you know, like I said earlier, using total return swaps, it's kind of been this, it's been in this like gray, murky water about whether this passes the sniff test, whether the SEC is going to approve this. But MSOS and YOLO to, you know, that's that fund's been around for a while. The SEC hasn't cracked down on either fund yet. Uh, Advisor Shares has been doing this for some time, um, and so it doesn't seem like they're going to, you know, have any issues. And in fact, as I was literally dialing into this podcast, I got a note saying that Amplify, which runs uh, the Amplify Seymour Cannabis ETF, that's ticker CNBS, they just announced the ability to use total return swaps in their fund as well. So. I imagine that's going to make a bit of a difference in how, you know, their the makeup of their U.S. exposure. So, yeah, I'll um, be interested to see if some other ETFs jump into the these swaps. And and I'll just add to everything that you said. You know, basically, you have these U.S. multi-state operators, and the reason they're using these swaps is because even though they're, they're pot producers that are operating in states where marijuana is legal, again, as you were saying earlier, marijuana is still illegal at the federal level. And so these stocks, yeah. they can't list on 
NYSE or, or NASDAQ. And so the way they're getting exposure is through these, through, yeah, through, through these swaps. It's, it's an interesting workaround, but it seems like maybe it's moving a little more mainstream. It is. And, and to your point about mainstream, um, I should point out that MSOS is kind of a darling of the Reddit crowd now. Uh, Wall Street Bets knows, yeah, you know all about MSOS and they are using it um, in exactly that way as a proxy for the U.S. marijuana industry, which is showing up in some massive trading volume on big news days when uh, Governor Cuomo said that New York State was going to start legalizing cannabis for recreational use. That that fund just popped. Um, not, but not so much for MJ, right? Which has been up to this point a, the proxy for the cannabis, uh, for the cannabis space, space. It's the biggest fund. It's the first mover, and so on. So you know, I, I think that has also contributed to MSOS's um, just monster first like six months of trading. Let's talk more about that, the performance side of the equation. And I know the the swaps may be driving some of the performance differential, but you mentioned about how. This is still a fairly limited universe overall, just across all global cannabis stocks and how these ETFs all hold many of the same names. But the thing is, if I go and look at the performance across the seven ETFs, it's pretty amazing. So year to date, and this is as of the uh, end of last week, the year to date performance ranges from up 56% to up 8% and and really everything (laughs) in between. And then if I look at the trailing one year performance, the range is up 116% to up 45%. You're talking massive performance differential here. Why is it? Like, like why is there so much dispersion among these ETFs that are in a seemingly similar space and do have some of the same holdings? You know, I, I've given a lot of thought to that. And I think uh, the reason... So there's a couple of reasons. One, it's such a small and emerging space with so many unknowns and so many small and micro cap plays that, uh, you know, a a difference in exposure or in holding or weighting rather um, of 1% can within a portfolio can make a huge difference in terms of uh, your your ability to ride out uh, a trend or a favorable news story or so on. Um, there was a, a news story in December where I think it was Tilray and Afria, which are two really big pot, big quote unquote, um, pot companies, uh, were announcing that they were going to do a merger. Uh, and the comp or the ETFs that had more exposure to those companies uh, benefited more from the that news than the ones that had less exposure. And and we're talking like a percent difference, right? If that, you know. The, the other element to this, too, is that uh, several of the best performing stocks, but not all of them, or excuse me, ETFs, but not all of them are actively managed. And in an emerging space like this one, active management does seem to be offering a little extra edge. You know, it has somebody, it, it, it seems to be helping to have somebody who knows the space can use their discretion to build investments based on their inside knowledge. That's, you know, it seems to be that way. There is also the possibility that as more investors are cottoning on to the idea of cannabis as an investable theme, they're chasing performance. They see, you know, PodX or, or CMBS go up, 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 and they want in. So they pour into that, that ETF, they pour their assets in. More money flows into the underlying holdings, which in turn boosts those bottom dollar, you know, the bottom dollar for those stocks, which helps put, you know, helps push the ETF higher, and it becomes this like snake eating its tail, right? It goes up and up and up and up until you know one day it will stop, right? So I guess my my big caution to anybody who might be looking at the cannabis space and saying, man, I got to get in there, is that you know. Expect the unexpected. This is a historically extremely volatile space. You cannot expect that the performance in cannabis will continue to go up. Stonks do not go up forever, right? <laughs> so, and and there's an argument to be made that federal legalization in the U.S. will actually negatively impact returns because then suddenly you've got the supply of this flood of supply on the market which is going to make it harder for growers and distributors to make a buck and so on and so forth. So 
I mean, I don't know how much I, I buy it. I don't know how much I don't, but it's there. So just be careful. <laughs> That's all. Let, let me ask you this. Besides, yeah, besides just being careful, and, and you mentioned chasing performance, which we know historically is never really a good investment strategy. As people do look at this space, because I, I think given what's going on um, really at the federal level, the discussions that we're seeing in Congress, more investors are going to gravitate to this space. And we do have the seven ETFs, the, the couple of ETNs. Any due diligence tips you would offer for investors that are evaluating this segment of the market? I mean, it's, it's going to be my usual refrain. Look under the hood. Make sure you understand, for example, that YOLO and MSOS and now CMBS hold total return swaps. Are you comfortable with that sort of derivatives exposure? Uh, understand that MJ holds companies that you know are outside of what you might consider a cannabis industry, like a fertilizer company and a bunch of uh, cigarette companies. Like, understand what your fund is holding, uh, dig into those you know portfolios, dig into the holdings, and just make sure it aligns with your expectations. Um, and on top of that, uh, you know there are two ETNs in this market, uh, so they work a little differently than ETFs do. So if you're looking at uh, MJO or MJJ, those are the tickers for the two M for the e two ETNs. Just make sure you understand how an ETN is different than an ETF uh, and, 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 and what that risk exposure looks like uh, from, you know, just just all perspectives. Just please read your prospectuses. I know they're they're boring, but <laughs> make sure you understand what your fund is holding. Laura, just a couple minutes left. When I think back again to two years ago and we saw this influx of new pot ETFs come to market, I, I thought a lot about how many of these would actually survive, like like if there were too many. And you look now, all of these ETFs are pretty healthy, right? There are six ETFs over 100 million in assets. I actually like Cambria's chances to get there with Toke. And, you know, I'll be visiting here in a moment with uh, with, with Med Faber. I, I think you were alluding to this earlier. It sounds like you are a little surprised that all of these have found some success or at least have a path to success. Is, is that correct? I am. I'm I'm pleasantly surprised. You know, the way that ETFs usually work, uh, or thematic ETFs usually work, there's the first mover who gets all of the assets. There's a competitor that launches shortly thereafter that carves out a nice little niche for themselves. And then maybe if you're lucky, you might get a cheap, um, you know, a cheap version um, that can carve out a third cheaper option that can carve out a little uh, you know, place for itself. And then after that, nothing. Any fund that launches after those two, first two or three is going to have a lot of trouble amassing any sort of foothold or, or, or mind share within the investors, um, you know, investors minds. That's not the case in cannabis. And so maybe it's because each one of these ETFs has a unique sort of selling point, right? So MJ and YOLO were the first two. Uh, MJ was first, then YOLO. And so they kind of followed that that traditional setup. But then you've got, uh, you know, PodX, which is the Global X Fund that has, um, you know, the distribution arm of Global X behind it and fits nicely into the, you know, thematic equity sleeve. Um, you know, there's uh, CMBS, which is the actively managed one from, from um from Amplify, and they have just knock out of the park performance numbers. Uh, as does THCX, which is from Innovation Shares. You know, really, really high numbers uh, in terms of performance. But the first one is active, and the second one is passive. So you know, whichever way you want to fall on that divide, you have an option. There is an option. Um, you know that old saying or the, that old advertising line from Apple. There's an app for that. Well, there's a there's an ETF for that in the cannabis space. Um, so I'm just interested to see how it shakes out. I I kind of fall with you. I think Toke has a good chance. It's I believe the cheapest in the space. Um, Meb Faber is, you know, a great uh, smart guy and, and Cambria is a good good firm. So like why not? Let's have let's have seven ETFs that are just um, $100 million or more in this space. Why not?
Well, you have to think, too, just with the success that these ETFs have had, we're going to see more launches here. And if, if I recall correctly, I feel like there's a mutual fund ETF conversion coming in, in this uh, segment of the market as well. But again, as long as all of these ETFs are, are viable and, and showing growth, my expectation would be to see additional issuers enter the fray here. So I, definitely going to be interesting to watch. But Laura, so great having you back on the podcast. Next time, now, now mark this down, we're going to talk Bitcoin ETFs. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you so much for having me back. That was Laura Krieger, Managing Editor at ETF Trends and ETF Database. It's like, I don't care about nothing, man. Roll another blunt. This week, certainly not least, is Meb Faber, CEO and Chief Investment Officer at Cambria Investment Management, who currently offers 12 ETFs with about a billion dollars invested, including the Cambria Cannabis ETF, which has one of the best ticker symbols you're going to find anywhere, TOKE, T-O-K-E, and Meb is now on the line with me from El Segundo, California. Meb, welcome back to the podcast. Great to be here. Thanks for having me. Well, I have to tell you, when I was thinking about covering cannabis this week, of course, today is 420. I just thought you were the perfect person to have on. You have the best ticker symbol with Toke. The expense ratio is 0.42%. I have to point that out. Uh, the stars just seem to align here. Plus, you obviously know the uh, the cannabis space inside and out. By the way, is today like a uh, like a full holiday in California? Everybody just taking off? I'll tell you when everybody wakes up, man. It's early here on the West Coast. We're not blanketed in snow like you guys. We're uh, it's a uh, sunny and beautiful blue skies today. So um, mostly the surfers are out. So I'll tell you. I'll tell you later. <laughs> All right. So let's start with your overall thoughts on cannabis stocks and the cannabis market right now. And I, I would say, if I were to paint with a broad brush, just going back over the past two years, things were extremely challenging from about midway through 2019 into March of last year, obviously bottoming out during the market crisis. And then the entire space took off, I, I think especially heading into the uh, no November election. And that ran well into February. But then you look since that time, there's been a decent pullback, over 30%. Just take us through some of these ebbs and flows over the past two years, and then we can talk about things moving forward. The short answer is it uh, can be summarized by, by that old phrase, the tale of sound and fury signaling, uh, signifying nothing <laughs> over the course of the last few years. You kind of ended up in the same place we started, big downdraft, big updraft. But um, as you think about investing in these sectors and industries, it's a bit of an oddball fund for us because we actually don't believe that investing in sectors and industries adds value over time. And that's an odd statement to say from someone who manages one of these funds. But the reality is, that if you look at the reasons to invest in a thematic fund, it can be one of three. It can be factor-based. You know, is there a particular value or momentum reason to do it? Uh, it can be based on a structural situation, which is uh, what we're seeing really with cannabis. And then lastly, um, you know, a, a, a mean reversion opportunity, which played out last year. And we actually talked about this when we launched it. We said, you know, we talk in timeframes of decades which investors don't like to hear, but is the reality of our world. Things don't play out over days and weeks and months like everyone wants them to in quarters and hours with the new Robinhood crowd, but really a much longer period. And um, that, it, to us, is the thesis that you need to look at. So we've done a ton of research that shows when, when sectors and industries are down 60, 80, 90 percent, it's usually a fantastic time to invest. And so we were all over this over the past year, 
saying, look, um, we rarely say a martingale approach is, makes sense, meaning doubling down as something goes down. But if you want to have a long-term exposure to this super fast-growing industry, it's a totally reasonable approach. And, and so far, uh, that seems to have, have worked out in, in this year and the end of, end of last. When you talk about the structural situation, as we sit here today, I'm curious, what do you view as some of the key opportunities in the space? We obviously have Democrats in control of Congress. I feel like that seems to be viewed positively by the industry. Uh, There are more states moving towards legalization. What's next? Like, what are some of the, the structural drivers here? A lot of kind of what the media talks about and what you mentioned are sort of the known uh, waypoints, uh, the known catalysts. And that's good. We all know that it's inevitable, you know, quoting Thanos like that. This is going to happen. It's just a matter of when I like to take an even longer perspective. If you look at the two best performing industries in history out of about 50 industries, stock industries going back to the 1920s, they are in order tobacco and beer, which is kind of amazing, right? Um, that you can go back all that, uh, almost a century and those two industries dominated the stock returns and i think a perfect analogy was the post-prohibition and everyone gets this but i'm actually quant so i went and studied it and said how did the the alcohol companies do post-prohibition and the answer was they destroyed the market they did 20 percent returns uh which was almost double the market in the post uh, 1930s period but the returns were lumpy and in fact a lot of the returns came in the second half of the decade rather than the first few years as the industry matured. And so you're starting to see that maturation now where you're starting to see mergers, you're starting to see acquisitions, you're starting to see these companies generate uh, significant revenue growth. And the big one, you got to know anytime there's politicians involved, uh, they want to get their hands on the cash. And you already have a number of states where the cannabis revenue is already tax revenue is already more than the alcohol revenue, which is astonishing. Uh, for a business that hasn't been established for more than a few years in some of these states. And, and all the, I guarantee you all the other politicians are looking around at each other, jealous of the states that uh, have that in play. So um, to me, you know, you can't predict exactly what the catalyst will be. It'll be obvious in retrospect, certainly, uh, but rather to, to have a piece of this thematic bet for the, the better part of the 2020s. I think when investors look at this space, they like to bucketize it into the recreational side of the market and then the medical use side. Do you see more opportunity in, in one of those over the other, or are they both tied together in terms of this longer-term trend that, that could play out? I, I always uh, smile at the segmentation because it's not that big of an industry already, and so you're, you're getting down to pretty small numbers of stocks in general. I mean, we, we like to have exposure to all the various um, areas of the cannabis ecosystem. I think it makes sense. Uh, you would like to think there's going to be some diversification, but honestly, these these stocks have so much volatility and correlation, they often move uh, kind of in tandem in general. And, and if we know anything, you mentioned it in the intro, is that one of the biggest determinants of performance over time for these funds is, is low cost. You know, all 12 of our uh, ETFs are, are lower in the category average, and, and including this one, which is the single lowest cost fund in the category. And that's important. And an additional note to this, not a lot of people know, many people don't pay attention to, but is extremely important. And also, particularly in this space, thematic funds, is the short lending revenue. And the good guys, we like to think we're one. Robinhood won't do this for you, but most uh, ETF companies will, is that if the securities in your fund are being lent out for short lending, and the revenue comes, that revenue can then be distributed to the end uh, investor. And so, and sometimes if it's an S&P 500 fund, it's not that material, a few basis points. Some of our funds, maybe it's 10 or 20, uh, which is meaningful. But in the cannabis space, it's measured in hundreds of basis points, meaning you're getting a one, two, three percentage point yield on this fund uh, and, and many of the others as well, I, I assume, that is almost like a dividend yield uh, that you could view as not only is the fund not totally free with the expense ratio, but paying you to own it, which is a pretty cool uh, concept and would encourage all the listeners to check out your all your funds 
uh, to see if uh, they do this as well. Well, Meb, on that note, let's talk more about your ETF. Again, the Cambria Cannabis ETF, TOKE. What is the underlying investment process here? And tell us about the types of holdings that you ultimately target. Sure. I'm a quant. Uh, it doesn't mean that we're a high-frequency, totally complicated quant, but I like to have rules and guardrails. At the same time, I think the absolute best structure for an investment fund is an actively managed index, meaning it's, it's, uh, you have the rules, but you have guardrails and position sizing in place to uh, ensure that it, it does well. And the biggest problem with the traditional market cap weighted index, so this isn't just cannabis, but U.S. stocks, global, anything, uh, is your base, you're investing based on price alone. And then that gives it no tether to fundamentals. And then on the flip side, if you do any other weighting scheme, value weight, equal weight, um, investing based on price earnings ratios, whatnot, you run the risk in a fund industry like this of being exposed to the really teeny tiny stocks often. And it's such a small universe that that's, that's tough. You could end up with a bunch of stocks with, with 50, 100 million market cap. And so we, we start with a, a blend, meaning market cap slash equal weight starting point. That having been said, we have the ability to actively manage the fund. And why is that important? You know, we uh, came into this year with out of the entire ETF universe, the, um, our oldest ETF, the SYLD Shareholder Yield Fund, had the highest exposure to GameStop of any fund out there. And if you didn't have either quantitative rules or actively managed position sizing guardrails, you know, that position for other funds went from like 1% to like 40% of the fund and back down to, to 5 just a crazy impact on the funds. And we were able to, to sell that stock as it appreciated. Same thing applies to this space. You know, you've certainly seen the volatility in moves in the cannabis stocks. So the ability to say, okay, this situation is, um, you know, out of line or the situation, uh, you know, <laughs> the Wall Street bets crowd is coming after uh, Tilray or something else, you know, I, I think is the value add of having an actively managed index. And, and one last comment is that um, many indexes, and I'm not going to name names, are managed without regards to impact. All they care about is tracking the index. And so you'll see, and not just in this space, but in other fund companies and ETFs, people make trades that are totally um, without regard to impact, and you'll see stock moves of 20, 50 percent. Uh, say if they're selling it, we'll push it down, or buying it, we'll push it up, which is a huge cost over time to the fund holders. And so we like to be thoughtful about uh, uh, the boring stuff like execution as well. In terms of the actual exposure to the marijuana space, what what types of companies will this ETF hold? All of them. Okay. <laughs> That's the goal. You know, I mean, we we eventually. Um, my thesis when we launched this fund is we want exposure to the entire space. And it's hard to predict which parts of the space will will really uh, grow in the early days. Um, it's the same thing with tech. Uh, how many of us you know, thought we'd be spending all last year on, on Zoom calls and which companies really do well? Um, I will make a note and say that it's important to us that this fund is global. I haven't really heard anyone else with this thesis, but uh, I, I believe it, that as this matures from a U.S. and Canadian story to a global story, the two markets that I think have the biggest potential impact in the second half of this decade already have a massive cannabis uh, foundation is, of course, Asia and Africa. And whether those will come online uh, from the legality standpoint in the early part or later part of the decade, uh, I think it's important to have a global view. And I would fully expect this fund to be uh, a majority global as time progresses. Uh, you know, it's certainly not yet. And, and in fact, there's some U.S. companies we can't buy that we'd like to. Uh, so over time, we'd like to have exposure to every part of the ecosystem, but more importantly, global as well. That's a really interesting point, because I feel like I've been seeing a lot more recently about the potential merit of only owning uh, U.S. exposure. So, of course, there are some of these ETFs that own swaps on these mm -hmm. multi-state operators, and, and perhaps it's more marketing. I just feel like I'm seeing that everywhere. Do you have any, any comment? 
or comments on no, that? I mean, exposure? look, we uh, we tend to be pretty um, regulatory and legal aware, and our friends at Advisor Shares, uh, God bless them, love them to death. You know, they they figured out a way to invest in U.S. multi-state operators um, through swaps, and in general, swaps to me um, make me nervous for a number of reasons, but. Um, you know, it's also inevitable that they will become a part of the broad legal to invest in the banking. It's all going to happen, right? To me, that's not uh, a question of if; it's a question of when. And so, um, in the meantime, you know, we're we're happy to wait. And and if you look at the uh, correlation and and moves of the entire industry, they tend to they tend to move together. So um, we'd, we'd love to be able to invest in everything, and I think eventually at some point, um, you know, you could even make a comment on, have a whole discussion on the tobacco side of the business too and how they're sort of merging and uh, developing over time because one of those uh, has enormous amounts of cash and cash flow and size and in a declining business that is increasingly uh, facing regulatory pressure as opposed to cannabis, which is which is sort of the opposite, the young, the young sibling. So eventually those two, I think, will, will become almost one industry. Meb, just a couple minutes left here. From an investment standpoint, I feel like cannabis is one of those areas where it actually seems pretty intuitive what's going to happen. And, and you've alluded to this. I mean, at some point, pot will be legalized at the federal level. Uh, it's a matter of, 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 of when, not if. Uh, demand for cannabis will grow. The industry will grow. It sort of reminds me of uh, sports betting in that regard. <laughs> but but the thing is, just because we know that, it doesn't necessarily make for a good investment opportunity. Maybe all that's priced in. So I'm curious, how do you think about that? Because again, this is a space where I think most people, they can look at it, they can see the opportunities, but investors also have to take into account things like valuations and competitive risk. So, so just sure. overall, how do you think about this from an investment thesis standpoint? Let me give you a perfect example. There is no more singularly held universal belief in all of investing. If you were to poll all your friends and say, ask them this question, say, do you think stocks outperform bonds over time? 100% would say yes. I don't know a single person that doesn't believe that. Then you ask most people, say, you know, how long are you willing to give an asset or a manager or uh, stocks uh, to outperform, in this case, stocks outperform bombs. Most people say three years. Maybe they'll say five. Maybe they'll say ten. Um, the, the lone crazy person will say ten. Last year, during the, the uh, pandemic, you had a period that U.S. stocks have the same performance as U.S. long bonds for not three years or five or ten or twenty, for 40 years. And there's been times in history when stocks have underperformed bonds for that long. And if you go back long enough, you could have 60 years. And that's an entire lifetime. But everyone still believes that to be true and, and um, continues to allocate the stocks as they should. So I often tell people when they're looking at an active manager or looking at a thematic fund like cannabis industry and expecting it to play out over the course of a quarter or a year, I say, look, it's like the old Robert Kirby, Kirby coffee can portfolio. You buy this, you put it away in a drawer. I'll check back in with you in uh, 2031. And, and it should have played out the way we think. Uh, most people are unwilling for that time horizon to, um, to occur. It's too hard for them. And in reality, to be able to outperform, the number one thing that, that the seduction of our investing world is chasing performance. And we've seen it over and over and over and over again <laughs> in the past five decades where people buy what they wish they had bought. And so there'll be a point which cannabis will probably uh, just scream off the charts. It's having a monster year already. I think our fund is up 30% in Q1. Um, but there'll be a time when it'll be uh, down too. Over time, we would expect it to do very well versus broad indices. Uh, for the next decade. Well, Meb, we'll have to leave it there. Really appreciate the uh, the perspective. Always appreciate your time. Thank you for joining me this week. Thanks for having me, and uh, make sure you get out in the snow and have some uh, snowball fights before uh, <laughs> before summertime. For sure. That was uh, Meb Favor, CEO and Chief Investment Officer at Cambria Investment Management.
That'll do it for this week's ETF Prime. As always, you can find me on Twitter at Nate Geraci, or you can send comments through ETFprime.com. Next week, I'll be joined by Janelle Jackson, head of U.S. ETF Capital Markets at Vanguard. She's going to highlight their new ultra short bond ETF and also provide a behind the scenes look at their capital markets team. And then Euclid Investment Advisory's John Creekmer and Carl Ashley are going to spotlight the Euclid Capital Growth ETF. Until then, have a great week, everyone. 